Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of ATX Specialty Foods, John Anderson. John started honing his skills as both an investor and analyst for numerous companies, including Goldman Sachs and Falcon Investment Advisors. 2010 brought with it an entirely new kind of niche, with John deciding to enter the food manufacturing market for the first time. His co-founded company, Zilks Food, quickly made a reputation for itself, supplying a high-quality, organic range of dips and sauces, their products were quickly being stocked across the country. Using his experience from Zilks, John founded ATX in 2015. As one of the only organic certified food manufacturing plants in Austin, ATX's products for clients are as diverse as they are premium. Although the company is still young, it has recently been listed on the Inc. 5000 for its fast growth, and ATX shows no sign of slowing down. With clients leaving rave reviews for the comprehensive approach ATX says to getting their products branded, quality assured, and stocked on shelves across the country. ATX Foods is growing like crazy. So, John, my friend, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to get into it. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it. Yeah, buddy. Well, tell us, how did, in your own words, how did, how did we get here? How did we get into this whole business? You know, it's funny. I get asked this question a lot. And I wish there was a sexy story. Uh, the truth is, uh, when I was in the investment world, it was very transaction-oriented. And the last probably two or three years in that career, we focused primarily in the food and beverage space. I worked with some very, very smart investors that came from the food and beverage world. Several of them have been, you know, instrumental in the package ice roll-up with Ready Ice, the, you know, the dairy roll-up with Suiza Milk and Dean Foods. And so we looked at a lot of food-related uh, businesses. We invested in several and one of which was a sour cream based dip in Hispanic style dessert business. And so that was kind of my intro into hummus and saw the consumer trends, saw grocery trends. And while hummus didn't necessarily fit my palate per se, uh, saw a huge opportunity uh, in that uh, industry. And so I partnered with a couple of people that I knew uh, from my investment career and then also from here in Austin. And we bought a small hummus company called Out to Lunch Foods in 2010, um, they were doing a, probably a couple hundred thousand in revenue. But the the genesis behind it was the really the consumer trends and what we saw the potential for hummus to be. And boy, were we right about that, but we were wrong about so many other things. Mm. And so uh, that's kind of how at least it all started and, and how Zilks kind of came to fruition. When so when you when you bought that company in 2010. Was that a particularly risky feeling time coming coming out of the recession of 08 and 09? Or was it, did it feel like a prime time to buy something like that? You know, it's funny. That was really part of our broader thesis. It, I didn't leave the investment community or finance community to own a dip business per se. We looked at a range of consumer uh, product businesses. Uh, part of the genesis was coming out of the recession. We saw a huge opportunity uh, for consumer product businesses, uh, specifically dips and sauces, refrigerated dips and sauces. But part of the thesis was also that there were lots of entrepreneurs or business owners that had slogged it out through the recession and really wanted to exit. 
mm. and hadn't been able to. And so we thought we could find a good value coming out of the recession. And so that was really part of it. Uh, it was as much capitalistic as it was entrepreneurial. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. As it, as it, as it should be. When you were looking at companies to buy, were, were you in the kind of investment industry that you were already focusing on, kind of food and beverage and that kind of thing, and that's why you were onto the trends, or were you looking at a variety of categories? A variety of categories, but we honed in on refrigerated dips and spreads pretty quickly just from the prior experience. Um, once we found out to lunch or what was called what was you know the predecessor to Zilks, we knew that was it. Um, it was kind of one of the just the ones that stood out. We liked the, the founder. Um, we liked the space, obviously loved the location. I'm originally born and raised here in Austin. I was living in Dallas uh, at the time. And so it was an opportunity to come back. There was just everything about it fit. Um, certainly from a size standpoint, very different than what we were doing before. The companies we were looking at before were, you know, enterprise values, 15 to 20 on the low end up to 150 million. And, you know, this company doing a couple hundred thousand in revenue certainly didn't fit that profile. Yeah. What, when you're looking at, so I don't come from a background of investing. I learned from the podcast and from doing some business, but I'm curious when you're talking about seeing the trends and you felt confident of where this industry was going and this company, like, what are you looking at? What, what are the things that are giving you that impression that this is a smart investment? Well, for Hummus specifically, we looked a lot at household, U.S. household penetration rates um, in terms of how many households were buying Hummus versus what the potential was. We were looking at the shelf space being allocated to it. Uh, we were looking at just health trends and, you know, some of the health attributes of Hummus and kind of where that fit into a number of the kind of diets that were kind of in play at the time. There were a number of things we looked at, but Hummus, hummus was already on the uptick by the time we did this. When I originally started looking at the space, it was probably 2006, 2007. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, man, I didn't even think about when that entered, entered the kind of American market or at least the popularity of it. Be, well, it probably was around uh, that time, right? Well, I'll tell you in 2004, the U.S. US household penetration rate for hummus, I'm going off memory here. It's been so long. I want to say it was around four or 5%. So one in 20 households were buying hummus in, you know, kind of 2004, 2005 timeframe versus, you know, imagine what it is now. Yeah. It's in my fridge. Right. Ours <laughs> I as well. I didn't grow up with it in my fridge, so it tells you that much. Yeah, no. And, and, and really, when we looked at the space, one of the things that we saw an opportunity was hummus was still pretty, pretty bland. I mean, pretty much you could get original garlic or red pepper. Those were the flavors that were available when we looked at the space. And so part of our, our play within the industry was we thought we could really innovate on flavor. Uh, another area where we thought was an opportunity we turned out to be wrong is we thought that we could you know by being organic or by being healthier we thought that would be an opportunity with hummus but the truth is hummus by itself is already is inherently healthy and so the fact that we may have been healthier really wasn't uh, a driver yeah you know, whereas we had maybe twice the fiber half the calories less fat you know some of those things that just those weren't decision points for consumers the way we thought they would be they really wanted what the flavor profile was, how it obviously tasted, uh, packaging. You know, those are things that they seem to care more about than than maybe being healthier per se. Yeah. What were as you think back, you know, as you're recounting that time with Zilks, what were the biz the biggest lessons you learned about building a business? Oh man, uh, it takes longer, <laughs> requires more capital uh, than you ever expect. Um, 
and I'll tell you just from being an entrepreneur, one of the biggest things I've learned is, you know, the highs are incredibly high, but the lows can be deep, dark, lonely places. And oh, people yeah. just, I think that's the part that people don't understand about owning a business. At least when I think about my friends and how I relate to them, it's, you know, they think, oh, wow, you've got such a nice work-life balance. You have such a flexible schedule. And yes, there are times that that's true, but man, it just never shuts off. It's like, you never just turn your brain off say, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not thinking about what's next. I'm not thinking about the things I've got to do. And when things aren't going right, man, it just affects every aspect of your life. Yeah. Oh man, it is. There's always those memes of the roller coaster journey of of entrepreneurism, and so true. I'll have friends send it to me and whatever, and I'm like, "You're sending this lighthearted." This to me is almost PTSD looking at it because I know, <laughs> I know the feeling of that down, that down tick, and this is not going to oh, work. Yeah. What were we doing? Oh man! And what I'm curious is, have you found any way to, um, I don't know, find some better way of relating to that to that up and down journey? Have you found anything that's helped you stay sane, stay stable, you know, maybe find some more emotional resilience or anything like that? Well, I think there's two things. One, uh, faith has always been important to me. It's important to our family. So that's always been a rock and just something that I've always relied on. But I think first, also from a very practical day-to-day standpoint, I joined Entrepreneur Organization back in 2012, maybe. Yeah. And finding another group of entrepreneurs and peers that understood that journey, understood the roller coaster that you're talking about, I think that always helped. Just having a group of peers that did understand and could relate. Look, my friends are my friends. I'm going to hang out with my friends. I'm going to go have a beer with them, do that. But I think when it comes to talking about the true emotions of what I'm going through, it just, it, I don't want to say it falls flat, but I'm not sure they totally understood for sure. I mean, it's just like having the friends that either aren't married yet or don't have kids yet. Doesn't mean we're not still really close friends, but there's certain there's certain experiences that's, that's right. hard to to communicate, right? That's right. And it's the same thing with if if you're just working for somebody, which is great. There's no right or wrong to this, or if you own your own business or an entrepreneur, there's just certain tra- experiences that's hard to translate, you know? I mean, especially coming into the pandemic. I don't know if you felt that, but just seeing the difference and some of my friends whose jobs were secure and they basically felt like they had a holiday versus me going like, dude, I got to figure this out. Like this is, there's no holiday. It's not that I just got time off. I got revenue going out, out the window. I've got to figure out how to pay people. I've got to figure out how to keep revenue coming in. All that. This is, this is not easy. You know what I'm saying? Well, and, and even just the little stuff like schedule disruptions, we, we were very fortunate being in the food industry that, you know, we didn't, we didn't get the luxury of just not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Food supply doesn't stop because there's a pandemic. And so we were here every day. We never once uh, shut down. And so um, on one hand, uh, there were a lot of benefits from COVID in that sense that, that we benefited from. And others, obviously, we'll get into it, uh, weren't as positive. But, you know, my routine didn't change. And because we fell into a specific category. Our kids were able to continue to go to school um, while they came home for you know a few weeks. They were back in person because they met certain criteria. And so that, that really helped us just maintain sanity in terms of yeah. having a schedule and a routine that wasn't completely disrupted. Yeah. Have you found that just in general be, to be true for your, for your entrepreneurial journey, setting your own predictable rhythms and habits versus I wake up when I wake up and I 
figure out in the day what I'm going to do. You know, uh, I think that's how a lot of us start. And then we realize that, that actually makes things worse yeah. versus having a predictable environment and routine and that kind of thing. Has that been true? Yeah. For you? yeah I have a personal routine that I try to stick to the best I can. I would not say my schedule is predictable. That part is kind of all over the place. Um, but I have a routine in the morning that I go through, you know, and we certainly have family time and routines we go through at night with the kids. And so we stick to that as best we possibly can. Yeah. Tell me more about the, the flexible schedule with work. What does that look like and how do you navigate that, the chaos of that? So it was interesting. And this will kind of go back to part of the story at the beginning as well. You know, part of my thesis for leaving the finance industry and being an entrepreneur was work-life balance. And because, you know, Certainly Goldman and, and, and several of the other places subsequent to Goldman, you know, we worked long hours and there were times that you would get pulled in late nights or over the weekends and that disrupted certain things personally. So I thought by owning my own business, I would have more control over my calendar. And in some respects, that's true. In a lot of respects, it's, it's not true. And so that's one area where I've learned the hard way that it's not always greener on the other side. Um, I'm sorry, Drew. I, I, I went down that path and I lost You're track good. of it. I was asking you about the unpredictable nature of your day-to-day -day schedule with the business and how you navigate that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I keep a calendar and my wife and I keep a calendar and we kind of sync up with each other. And that certainly helps uh, a lot. I'm religious about it. if it's not on my calendar, just don't count on me. <laughs> I yeah. probably won't be there. And so I use, I use my calendar on my phone, my computer religiously. That's very important to me. And um, my team just kind of has learned that I, I do a pretty good job of putting on the group calendar when I'm going to be in the office and when I'm not, but they've just kind of learned not to, you know, to, it's not always going to be exactly what it says. Yeah. Yeah. With you wearing so many hats, I'm making an assumption here, but as the owner, as a founder, you're going to be wearing a whole bunch of different hats, having a lot of demands come at you on the fly. Some you could predict, some you couldn't predict for you how do you make decisions on in a, in a given day and what gets your time and when? Wow. It's something I feel like I'm still trying to get better and better at. Sure. Um, I, I think for me, it, um, the big turning point for me was when we launched ATX and, and that's a big part of the, the journey here because Zilks was more of the, more the troughs of the roller coaster or the downs than the ups. Uh, Zilks was a, was a struggle and, and Zilks has actually kind of had a little resurgence. But we learned from that experience when we launched ATX, we really hired a whole new management team. Uh, and we were very, very fortunate that we found uh, some key people that have be just become trusted, trusted, uh, I, I go as far as saying friends of mine now, where I, I trust them wholeheartedly to make a lot of decisions on a mm -hmm. day from a day-to-day -day basis. And so we've got into a good rhythm of kind of the decisions they feel very comfortable making versus the decisions that need to be elevated to me. And so I really have gotten into a good, what I would consider healthy place around really focusing on the direction of the business, more strategic aspects of the business, navigating COVID, you know, over the last year and PPP funds and all the various things that came with that. And they really do a fantastic job managing the day-to-day -day business in terms of, you know, when production scheduled, how it's scheduled, shipments and, and those pieces. And we, also uh, uh, learned a system called EOS. It's a Gino Wickman model. I'm sure a lot of people have talked uh, with you about it on the podcast. And so we follow EOS pretty, pretty strictly. And so we have a level 10 meeting every Tuesday 
at 9.30. And that's when a lot of issues get elevated to me that I need to be aware of. And yeah. So my team does a good job of elevating that. Otherwise, I really do try to focus on the business versus in the business because I've got, I've got a team of guys and gals that just are really good in their respective fields. Mm. And so uh, trusting them to make those decisions has been very good for my own headspace. And it took me a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back to that. Um, but before I come back to that, I want to make sure we, we actually get the rest of the story for where ATX comes in. So where, where, where did ATX enter the picture? How yeah. Did, so kind that- of the, Kind of the abbreviated version is, you know, Zilks, we launched, we bought out to lunch foods in 2010 um, from this guy, Dave uh, Wilkins here in, in Austin. And my experience from the finance world told me it was a matter of it, uh, when, not if our visions of the business would diverge. He had retained 20%. We bought eight, 80%. We had pre-negotiated what the buyout of that 80 of the other 20% looked like. We ended up executing that within the first 12 months. It just was obvious that he wanted to go a different direction than we did. But we raised some outside capital in 2011, and we used that capital to build our own manufacturing space here in South Austin to support the growth of, of this new entity, Zilks. And so our vision was for Zilks to be the next big hummus brand. At the time, Sabra was the number one, followed by Athenos, and I think Tribe Mediterranean at the time was the number three. And so our our goal was to kind of grow as a regional player, then ultimately a national player. And that was the vision for Zilks to be a huge hummus company. And when we launched in 2012, it coincided with the, you know, the new manufacturing space that we had just built. And there were construction issues, you know, design mistakes, things we just didn't know, things that we made mistakes on, things that other people made mistakes on. It was kind of a combination of both. And so when we launched Zilks, one of the big things was the the temperature monitoring and the thermostats were not installed correctly. And so we had product leaving our facility that had been exposed to higher temperatures, basically temperature abuse, and we didn't know it. And so we had to do a voluntary withdrawal within the first six weeks of launch. And so what was, you know, at the time about a million dollar business, we had grown it from a few hundred thousand to a million. And that kind of, you know, was the predecessor to launching Zilks. We launched Zilks on a run rate of maybe between two and a half and $3 million. We got into multiple regions of Whole Foods, almost system-wide with HEB, a number of other regional uh, grocery chains. And within six to eight weeks, that came crashing down. Oh. So we built this infrastructure for this huge multi-million dollar company and growing, and it pretty much came crashing down right away. And so we spent really three years trying to make it work, trying to rebound, trying to recover. And it just, it never quite materialized. And we realized we were really frankly throwing good money after bad and other companies had surpassed us and all the things that we were trying to do, other people started doing after we had tried to do it. And it just, we weren't the innovator anymore. When, well, two questions. One, what was that like mentally and emotionally for those three years? And then two, when did you know this is not working and we got to, we got to think about something else? I think several things happened. I mean, I think looking back hindsight's 2020, we probably should have realized it a lot sooner than we did um, mentally and, and psychologically, physically, it was, it was rough. It mm. was really rough. Um, and so, yeah, it was, those were a rough couple of years in a lot of respects. And, Interestingly, uh, our son was born in the middle of all that, which was a bright moment. 
and I, and I say that because I'm going to get to my daughter here in a second. What I think ultimately was the catalyst was the three original partners, myself being one of them. The partnership started to break up and fracture. And I think that really was the ultimate catalyst to pushing it over the edge was um, one of my other partners pushed out the third partner. And so I ended up buying his, his ownership. And then ultimately myself and the other, the, the other remaining partner kind of didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And so I think that ultimately was what kind of pushed it over the edge was, sure. was partnership issues. Um, unfortunately, because I, I think had that not been the case, we may have just tried longer and just, you know, it's that, and you know, that tunnel vision, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get into uh, where we're so focused on that one thing, we were blind to all the other opportunities around us. And while that door was shutting, we couldn't see the three or four other doors that were opening around us. And so, yeah, it just, it was rough. That's so tough, man, because one of the things that's an essential ingredient to making anything work is like crazy amounts of perseverance, right? That's right. Yet in the back of your mind, you're trying, you're also wondering like, am I being blind to something not working versus it's not working yet? Right. And so I could see that being really tough. And I've gotten stuck in that cycle so many times of just being stubborn and like, no, we can make this work. No, we can make this work. And frankly, I had friends and family that invested back in the original rounds. And I was determined to make good on that because they were yeah. investing in me as much as they were investing in anything else. And so all of that kind of created blinders for me uh, in a number of respects. And so when the partnership issues came about, it was just, it became more and more obvious that this is broken. And so what we realize in, in what's, you know, owning our own manufacturing, owning our own manufacturing ended up being the best mistake we ever made. And I say that because it was a mistake. We never should have been a production company. You know, if we were focusing on growing a brand, 100% of the dollars we had available to us should have been there to support sales and marketing activities. And the vast majority of those dollars ended up going to supporting the manufacturing. And so that's also part of the reason why I think Zilks failed. But it also created an opportunity for us and we became production experts through those trials and tribulations. We became experts at manufacturing hummus and hummus related products. And so that's the genesis of ATX. And so when, when things with Zilks in 2015, we kind of recapped the business, we, you know, worked with our lenders to convert the debt to equity. And we did a lot of things that allowed us to survive. It also made us pivot or allowed us to pivot and focus where frankly we were good and growing a brand, marketing a brand, getting shelf space and maintaining shelf space were things we were not good at, but what we were really good at was making good product. And so we started, we said, okay, well, we've got all this manufacturing that's unused. How do we sell that capacity? And Austin was a breeding ground for regional manufacturing or regional huh. CPG companies. And so we went out to the CPG companies that were doing similar things, not necessarily hummus, but whether it was salsa or Bloody Mary mix or various other things that were tangential to hummus that required a lot of the same, you know, manufacturing assets. We went to them and said, hey, you're making this product in a commercial kitchen, you're seeing success, let us make this product for you. And so that's where ATX really started in 2015 and 2016 was helping other regional CPG companies, you know, find scale. And then 
from that experience and those couple of years, we realized, wow, picking winners and losers in the regional CPG market is really challenging. How do we find predictable, stable volume? And so that's where I had the vision to really pivot and focus on food service. And that's where ATX plays now is 70% of our business is supporting restaurants. And so we launched ATX as a brand in 2017. Um, all under the same legal entity. So investors were going to enjoy the same upside, but it kind of took all that manufacturing expertise and really focused it and said, hey, wow, you know, the pendulum on one end of the food service spectrum was, hey, we're going to make everything scratch kitchen in-house. And that's where things were for a long time. And then I think the pendulum has started to swing the other way of, hey, wow, we need to scale. We need to limit back of the house operations. We need to simplify what we're doing, create consistency. And so that's where we play. And so we have partnered with a number of really, really great restaurant groups here that are based here in Texas, but have, you know, distribution across, you know, not, I wouldn't say nationally, but certainly broader than just the Southwest region. And that, that business has just taken off. And that's what ultimately got us on the Inc. 5000 this last year is what's going to get us on it this year is just partnering with those restaurant groups. And on one hand, that's been amazing. Obviously we'll get into COVID uh, things, things got hit pretty hard in COVID, uh, with people not going to restaurants, but so uh, that's the genesis of at least how we got to where we are today. Totally makes sense. What, where my curiosity is just cause I don't know the food industry that well. So what you're saying is certain restaurants are realizing that they could have a port, a part or part of the process of whatever's on the menu already made kind of in mass quantities through you guys and then show up to the restaurant just in time to cook it or to right. that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing the ghost kitchen concepts, you're seeing limited prep, you're seeing all sorts of things take place where some restaurant groups are finding uh, whether it's commercial kitchen space or a commissary where they make a lot of stuff in a central location and then get it out to the satellite locations because real estate, real estate's expensive and it's only mm. going up. And if they can maximize the revenue generating side of the, business. Again, I'm not a restaurateur. I, I, this isn't my business, my expertise, but I know that if you have X amount of square feet, you want to maximize the floor space where people are dining, right? That's the revenue generating side of your business. And if to the extent you can reduce the back of the house operation, it allows you to, you know, or minimize the back of the house. It allows you to maximize the front of the house. And so that's where we've helped people. And so I think about like wing, wing, chains you know one of our largest customers is a major wing chain here in the southwest yeah. region and so we make all their wing sauces for them and so for them you know they buy the they buy the chicken uh, wings and they fry them and then they toss them in a pre-made sauce and so whether you go to one location here in south austin or north austin or dallas or oklahoma or louisiana you know you're going to get the same exact product every single time totally makes sense got it all right, well, let's zoom out as we're kind of comparing and contrasting that first go with, with Zilks and then now with ATX. What are a few of the key differences that you see that have emerged that have allowed this one to be more successful where this one struggled? I'd say two things, uh, passion, uh, skill set, uh, and then two people. For me, I was a math and finance major. Uh, so I'm about as left brained as they come. And so creating beautiful packaging, developing marketing strategies for, you know, a dip brand just wasn't in my skill set. And I was outside my comfort zone. It wasn't anything that I really was passionate about. You get me in front of an Excel spreadsheet, man, I thrive. Uh, <laughs> and so, 
you know, <laughs> you, and you so, don't hear that often. <laughs> and so, you know, that pivot to, to more operational intensive business, the manufacturing side of things, that's where I found a passion. And that's where I found something I truly enjoyed. And so I think that's a big part of it. And, and as an entrepreneur, that passion is obvious to people. Yeah. And so when you're not passionate about something, it's obvious. And when you're passionate about something, it's obvious. And so I think people will feed off that energy and people did feed off the energy. And then the second part of the answer is people. We have the wrong people, to be perfectly honest with you. And sure. I think that that's been a big struggle of mine or certainly was a big struggle of mine early on as an entrepreneur is finding the right people. And when you don't have the right people, being willing to make those changes quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big lesson I've learned in terms of, you know, I think the expression goes, what, uh, fire fast, hire slow. Uh, Correct. Yep. And so, you know, I've learned that over time and the people that we have on our team now are phenomenal. And it's allowed me to truly, like I said earlier, focus on the business versus in the business, all the typical cliches yeah. here, but it's true. I mean, having the right people allowed me to do that. And that's what has allowed us to scale this business from, you know, sub a million dollars to, you know, nearly $10 million over a three year period. Wow. Wow. How, how big is the team at ATX right now? Uh, we hover between about 42 and 45 on a full-time basis. Okay. And what kind of, again, just curious on how each industry works, what kind of, out of 42 people, what kind of positions are those? Yeah. How we structured. Yeah. So right yeah. now we have a five person, myself included five person, what I would call senior management team, executive team, uh, where we've got, uh, you know, VP of operations, uh, in my, in our industry, I have a head of food science and product development. He's a chef and, and food scientist and man, he's amazing. Um, mm. but having that in-house was, is a big differentiator for us. And then, uh, Eden, we have, she, uh, used to be, uh, more finance related, but she's transitioned more towards, uh, human resources now that we've gotten to be a much bigger team. And so she handles culture and human resources and she's fantastic. And then we have kind of a, a project, a senior project manager. Uh, that person is owning customer experience, you know, kind of projects, you know, scaling, you know, from very early on, you know, touch point to getting it across the finish line. And so those are the senior team. And then we're, because we're a manufacturing organization, we have a six person operations management team that focus on the various, you know, from maintenance to uh, purchasing, warehouse, production, uh, inventory. And you're putting me on the spot here. Oh, you don't have to give yeah. all the specifics, but yeah. so you have six in operations management. That's right. Five in SLT are the rest uh, more the hourly line. worker. That's right. Line, line team. Line team. And so we've got, you know, team leads and, and stuff like that. But for all intents and purposes, everyone else beyond those, you know, 10 people are on the line in the, production area gotcha time. gotcha how did you guys get from the 10 to 15 you know person company all the way to a 40 something person company I mean, that's a that's a big jump yeah it really was that pivot to uh being a manufacturing services organization versus trying to grow a brand um once we found our stride and that volume picked up and having predictable volume where you knew five days a week you had production scheduled Mm. And, you know, the early years when we were focusing on, you know, CPG and re- regional CPG as our customers for the co-packing business, you didn't know that there'd be some days, some weeks you produce three days a week and some days you would need four or five. And that, un- you know, that 
the lack of predictability was a real problem. It made it yeah. hard to schedule people. It made it hard to retain people. And so that's where the restaurant and food service side of the business created some predictability that allowed us to bring in full-time employees, really staff up and plan ahead. And so where that was the vision. And so we've really hired ahead of our growth. And then we've kind of realized some of that growth over the last 12 to 18 months. Well, 20, 24 at this point. Getting that, there's nothing like getting that predictability in the business where you can actually make some decently accurate forecasting and know that you can afford to make the next round of hires versus, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully it'll just pick up, you know? Well, that's right. Because I mean, in a manufacturing organization, unused capacity is a cost. And to the extent you are not realizing your capacity, you're losing money, but you're certainly not realizing your potential. And so, uh, you know, machine uptime is the real key metric that we focus a lot on to make sure that, you know, we're not down, that we're, you know, keeping the equipment up and running. There's a lot of KPIs we look at, but I mean, it's just, it's really important to us that we're taking advantage of the time that we have. And so um, that, that predictability has been real important to us. Now I'm curious in some of the conversations I've had both on and off the podcast in the last six months, with people that are in some of the man- manufacturing space where you have a lot of hourly, either part-time or full-time workers, uh, there's been a lot of freaking out about people not wanting to work or, you know, making more money, being able to sit at home than come in. And so they've had turnover and they're having a hard time even getting enough people in there to fulfill the demand. Have you guys experienced that issue as well? I'm not even asking for a political commentary or whatever, but just as a business <laughs> owner, just as a business owner, has that been an issue you guys have faced and how yeah. have you handled that? Yeah, hundred percent. It's been, you know, interestingly enough, it was a challenge before COVID. Um, and, you know, in Austin, Austin before COVID enjoyed a very, very low unemployment rate. And so we always chalked up finding good people to, well, Austin's just, you know, there's just low unemployment. Well, then COVID hit and it's like, we were still trying to hire and there were a ton of people that weren't working and we couldn't get people to work. So then we kind of blamed it on the stimulus, right? People had stimulus money, you're getting extra unemployment benefits. And then those rolled off temporarily, at least here in Texas. And so we're like, okay, great. We're going to start to see an influx of people. And we didn't. Mm. And then the unemployment, you know, on the federal side, it came back again. Um, It's, I think, ending here maybe uh, this week, I think, Governor uh, here in Texas, you know, basically, you know, declined accepting anymore. And so again, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. Is it the stimulus? Is it on a low unemployment? Is it that people don't want to work? Every time I think I've got a good handle on it, something, you know, tells me I'm wrong. And so, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's generational. I, I, I really don't know, Drew, yeah. what, what is causing people to not want to work, but I do know, just from my own experience that getting people to come in and work is challenging. And our starting wage has always been, you know, well above minimum wage. I think before COVID it was 13. Uh, I think 12 was the lowest, but we bumped it up to 13 right before COVID. And I think, you know, now uh, we're at $15. And while we don't offer health insurance and some of that today, it's something we aspire to do at some point. Um, I think we're competitive based off all the things I look at and all the things I read and the people I talk to, I think we're competitive and we're still having a hard time. Yeah. How do you, how do you get by having an unreliable and I'm not talking about the people themselves being unreliable, but in terms of numbers and do we have the right people? How how are you guys getting by still satisfying the the amount of product you got to move and stuff like that? 
you know, I'll tell you, that's a real testament to our operations management team is they find a way to get it done. And, and, I'll, and I'll say it's, it's a testament really to the entire organization. Our line team, we have some people that have been with us a really long time. And we do have a lot of people that are extremely reliable and extremely hardworking individuals. And they find a way to get it done. Wow. And so certainly it creates challenges at time and, and our product mix has shifted a little bit to allow that, you know, it's a little easier now, but, um, did you guys take a crazy hit with, well, maybe it wasn't as bad. Did you guys have in, in your area and the places you're serving, did they, did the restaurant shut down for a long period of time and therefore not need your product for a while? How did that, how did that work? You know, it's interesting because we serve both the food service community and still a little bit of the CPG community. When restaurants shut down in late March and early April, you know, in, in Texas, and this is again, not personal, you know, political commentary here, but yeah. Texas is a conservative state. You know, they were pretty resistant to, to shutdowns. And while things did shut down in really the major metro areas in Texas, you know, our biggest markets are going to be Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, and Austin things did shut down and that certainly had a big impact on things. March and April were very, very rough. We lost a lot of money um, in those months last year, but once things started opening back up, the to-go and off-premise dining picked back up pretty quickly. While not yep. all the way back to pre-COVID levels, it picked up pretty quickly. And so we benefited from that. And then obviously the grocery business picked up a ton during COVID. People True. were home a lot more. And while our products aren't necessarily staples in terms of meal planning the grocery stores were just going crazy in terms of volume and so we we enjoyed the benefit of that a little bit uh, on a very temporary basis mm, totally makes sense yeah we're i'm in atlanta and so we experienced somewhat similar of a trajectory where we saw some restaurants obviously everything shut down for a few months but we were able to enjoy right or wrong whether people you know criticize that decision or not the reality was we had a lot more businesses like that restaurants being able to open at least to limited capacity or doing to go to go orders and keeping their people staffed and and that kind of thing and so um, we didn't see as some of the states might have six eight months a year of literally the restaurants being out of business that's right. Um, so, okay. That makes sense. We were very fortunate. You know, it's interesting though, about the staffing though, we're feeling the effects more indirectly now than directly. While we always have open positions, we're always looking for people. Eden and our, and our team have done a great job of trying to plug the holes, you know, where we can, we use a number of temp services, you know, and employment agencies to help us fill those roles. Um, but now the restaurants are having a hard time staffing. And so we're, we're seeing some of our restaurant partners limit their hours or open late, uh, and, you know, close a little early because they yeah. can't staff the entire, the entire restaurant. And so, um, we're starting to see the effects of that indirectly now, but, you know, again, here, here in Texas right now, things economically are looking very good. And so our, our business is rebounding very nicely from the demand standpoint. We're feeling the effects more of rising food costs. And so margins are being squeezed right now. Uh, so it's like, that, well, one that thing ends and the other well? thing, go ahead. Is that COVID related as well? When they had to dump a bunch of food, you know, because there was, it wasn't getting shipped out and all that. At least that's the, from the outside, that's what it sounded like. Farmers were having to get rid of a lot of food that they couldn't sell and all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, we're trying to demand more demand demands back. We're trying to get food again and it's causing costs to go up. Is that close to what is happening or no? I think that certainly plays a role. I think each individual item has its own story, right? You know, we do a lot of mayonnaise based dips and, you know, soybean oil is, 
more than doubled in the last eight to 10 months. And so when we're making mayonnaise-based sauces at an oil, you know, soybean oil base, you know, we're seeing cost increases in the neighborhood of, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80%. Whoa. And you can't always pass all that on. Again, that's mayonnaise. That's one very specific item. We're getting the weeds here, but we're seeing food cost increases across the board. And so some as little as, you know, four, five, 6%, others in the neighborhood of 10, 15, 20%. And, you know, it's, you try to pass it on as best you can. Um, but, you know, your you customers don't always like, yeah, that's right. That's right. You end up yeah. eating some of it. And so hopefully some of those things will stabilize. So, you know, I've been reading a lot about inflation and what people are expecting, but I can tell you firsthand, you know, food costs are going up. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious now on the internal side of the company at 45, 42, 45 people, uh, what is, what's the challenge now? Like in the season, I, I just like to think about like businesses going through seasons. You're not a young little kid anymore. You know, you're kind of that awkward teenager where you've shoot, you've shot up in growth and filled out, but it's not yet the business, you know, it could be, That's you right. know, set and forget it. It's like, no, nah, there's a lot of important decisions being made and new challenges that are here because of the stage we're in. How would you articulate at this stage of the business? Some of the challenges you guys are figuring out as a team? Well, it's really, to me, I think the, the simplest way of explaining it is we have to upgrade the infrastructure, right? We, we built a business to scale quickly, but now we've kind of reached a different level uh, in our life cycle to where we're really having to upgrade some of the systems and infrastructure that just can't support the next round of growth. Mm. And so the biggest one that we're undertaking right now is we're building a brand new building uh, just uh, south of Austin. It's a 73,000 square foot manufacturing facility. And so, you know, learning how to develop a building and a site and build something has been a learning process. And so that's been a fun journey. We finally broke ground about four, five weeks ago. And so that's been a fun exercise. We're evaluating ERP, MRP systems to, you know, we've just kind of outgrown QuickBooks. QuickBooks mm. has been amazing for us, but in terms of, you know, managing our inventory, managing, you know, all the aspects that, that go the ins and outs, it just, it doesn't work for what we need it to do anymore. And so that's when I say in upgrading the infrastructure, it's all in that. It's, it's both the physical infrastructure. It's also the technology behind a lot of things. It's how we manage the business, all of that. Yeah. And so it's been, it's been, it's, this has been a fun part of the journey. Whereas a lot of the Zilks, you know, were kind of those, you know, deep, dark, lonely places I described early on. This has been the fun side. And certainly we have our own set of challenges uh, and issues we deal with on a day-to-day basis, but there are a lot more fun problems to, to solve than maybe some of the ones we were dealing with, uh, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah, man. I always talk about the, the problems that come with growth are, are more fun to solve than the problems that come from not growing right certainly but there's still problems there's still problems right right. like you can't get around it there's still problems but mentally and emotionally you can handle it It seems to be a little easier to handle that you're like hey like at least we're solving problems because things are working versus the pulling the hair out like is this going to work am i a fool you know did i just waste everybody's money uh that kind of thing right i can actually i can actually sleep at night and that's right that's that's the difference yeah yeah that's right uh again I heard somebody say this once too. I don't think they were trying to make some big statement. But he's like, I've, I've had problems when I've been poor and I've had problems when I've been rich. I'd prefer yeah. to have problems when I have money, you know? Sure. And it's like, neither is a cure. It doesn't mean if you're poor, you're not happy. It doesn't right. mean if you're rich, you're necessarily happy. You're going to have right. problems either way. But if you had problems with some resources, you got more options 
to solve those resources. Same thing as a company. Like, yeah, we got we got trouble, trouble, but we got customers. We're growing. We have a team that, that believes in the mission. Like, that's a better recipe for trying to solve the challenges, right? Well, I think this is certainly an oversimplification. I was I was reading a book, uh, Who Not How, recently, and yeah. I, think, I think they said if you have enough pro- money to solve a problem, then you don't really have a problem. That's right. <laughs> and and while there's certainly a lot of truth to that, I think it's an oversimplification, but having money to be able to put towards a problem certainly makes things a lot more palatable. Yes. And, and the who, like you said, and having a team That's that right. is with you and, and, and bearing some of that burden and bringing their creative, you know, brainstorming power to it and their skills to it. It's like, we can figure this out, you right. know, uh, even if we don't have the answer right now, I'm confident we can figure this out. And there's that belief in there. And I think that that's also the power of, of EOS and what we do is, and I mean, again, I'm sure you've heard this all before, but part of the, part of our meetings is, you know, issue related at the end, we spend a considerable amount of time working through issues and we have a process yeah. by which we, you know, identify, discuss, and then solve. IDS, baby. I, that's right. You yeah. ultimately uh, try to make the problem go away forever through, you know, follow-up items and, and tasks. And so, um, while we don't always do it perfectly, we, we certainly try. Uh, and so, yeah, super cool. All right. This has been awesome, man. I want to, I want to get one more question and then uh, we're going to dive into our lightning round. I'll let you get back to your, your day. Okay. So just as we're hearing the story, we've gotten to hear the beginning of the story. We've heard how ATX came to be where you guys are at now, as you look up coming out of the pandemic, business still survived. Hey, we're still here. What, what's got you excited right now? Oh, in the short term, in the yeah, short this, term. this new building, this new building has been a long time coming. I've been dreaming about this for a long time. And I think the whole team is excited. We thought we would be in the building by now. It goes back to the takes longer and costs more money than you, than you ever think. Uh, but it's man, th- that project has been so much fun right now, Drew. And so we are really, really looking forward to it. And so seeing them move dirt, seeing them start to lay foundation, it just, it, it's starting to really come together. Heck yeah. That's awesome. All right, buddy. Let's do our lightning round questions. Five questions we've asked every founder on the podcast to date. Starting with question number one. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Oh, I'd say take pride in your work. Uh, Treat it like a career, not a job. Um, Mm. I think you never know what the opportunity, what opportunity will present itself and we've had a number of people that, that take that view. And, and these are guys that started off making, you know, guys, gals, both, you know, 10, 11, 12 bucks an hour. And now, you know, one of them's our production supervisor making well over, you know, well over $60,000. And so um, wow. it's that, that's, that would be a take pride view things like a career, not a job. Super cool. All right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Oh, best advice I ever got was uh, actually from one of our vendor partners said, enjoy the journey. Yeah. Um, it's not always about the end. It's, it's a lot of times about the journey itself. And while it hasn't always been fun, I've learned a ton and I've had a great time. And so, yeah, I would say enjoy the journey. Cool. What about the worst advice? Oh, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about owning your own manufacturing is, a, is trying to build a brand. Uh, I would tell you it was the worst advice I ever got, but it's also the best mistake we ever made. Yeah. And it's what allowed us to pivot to this and it opened up that door and man, I'm so glad. Love it. All right. Question number three, we've probably covered a little bit. So if you repeat yourself, that's fine. Uh, but what causes you the most stress or worry currently leading the organization? 
Oh, cash flow. Uh, I think I will tell you my sleep cycle. Uh, there is a huge correlation in my sleep cycle and what our bank account looks like. Uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs really uh, confuse profitability and cash flow. Yeah. And I think understanding the difference is critical. And certainly I had that benefit coming from uh, my finance career, but man, uh, cash flow is cash flow is everything. And so, yeah. Well, en enlighten us in your mind. What's the biggest difference between profitability and cash flow? So, I mean, just understanding your working capital cycle, right? Uh, and you know, you can show profitability on your income statement with whether it's EBITDA you're looking at or whatever metric it is you're looking at for profitability. But if your cash flow cycle is too long or mm. backwards, you can be, especially as a high growth company, right? So a lot of the entrepreneurs you're talking about that are high growth companies, when you're growing, a lot of times you can be profitable on your income statement, but you can be burning through cash. And so if you don't have those cash reserves, you could find yourself in, in some tough positions. Got it. Yep. Super helpful. Okay. Question number four. What's your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? 50 million in five years. Let's go. I think we can do it. Uh, our, our current goal is 30, but I think we can do 50. With the right customer mix, the, you know, this new facility we're bringing online, I think we can do it. Come on. I love it. All right, number five. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, and you get to tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back? And what would you tell that younger version of yourself? Anytime, like yep. not just in my entrepreneurial journey. Anytime. Oh, wow. Uh, it could be don't date that girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. This, this came up recently. I don't know if it was last week or the weekend before. I, I think it's about confidence. I think there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness. I think I never really had confidence growing up, whether it was high school, college, whatever. And I'm not, you know, again, dating girls, whatever application you want to put it. But I think when it came to my career, I think when it came to decisions I made, just be confident, trust your gut. And I just don't think I really learned that until much later. Um, and I wish if I had been confident growing up or in, may, in my career decisions, I think I'd be in a much more different spot. Love it. Buddy, this has been so great, John. Thank you for being on the podcast with us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure hearing about your growth as well as about the challenges. Again, I learn something every stinking time I do this these podcasts, and I certainly learned much from you. And I'm excited to see you guys continue to grow and scale. And, buddy, thanks for being here today. Yes, sir. Thanks, Drew. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.